Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. I'm Mike Morse, your host. Super excited that you're here with us today. We have another sad story. Another exoneration happened, and our next guest, Kenneth Nixon, served 16 years in prison for a crime he absolutely did not commit. He was found guilty at the age of 18 of a firebombing in Detroit that killed a 13-year-old, I'm sorry, a 10-year-old boy and an infant child. Nixon had an alibi in his girlfriend, but she was a co-defendant, so she couldn't help him. She couldn't testify. A 13-year-old boy was home and identified Nixon as the person responsible. And there was also a jailhouse snitch. And we've heard lots about jailhouse snitches who testified that Nixon confessed to the crime. Let's welcome Kenneth Nixon to Open Mic. Truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. Hey, Ken. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, man. Thank you for being here. Are you, are you, where are you located right now? What city are you sitting in? Uh, Detroit. Awesome. As am I. Um, so you've been out of prison for eight, almost eight months to the day. What was it like walking out of prison, getting your freedom back after 16 years? It was absolutely euphoric, like just the the thought of being able to finally prove my innocence, you know, was good. But to actually walk out of prison innocent and, and proven, you know, absolutely proven innocent was just, you know, mind blowing, life changing. In the last eight months, I mean, you know, you were you were locked up for I mean, the, the last 16 years, a lot has changed in our lives. A lot has changed in our worlds with technology and lots of different things. First, tell me some of the things that you you missed. What kind of milestones did you miss when you were locked up for this crime that you did not commit? Uh, most importantly, my kids lives. Uh, my youngest son is a, a standout football player. Uh, he just accepted his first college offer. Uh, you know, there was a lot just with the kids that I missed out on that, you know, you just can't get back. You know, I won't ever get an opportunity to see those first day of schools, those ball games, those practices, you know, just teaching him the basic stuff, you know, how to, you know, get a haircut and, you know, just the basic father son opportunities that, you know, I'll never get an opportunity to see. How many children did you have um, when, when you were convicted? Uh, two. And uh, are they both, are they, you know, did they, uh, did you get to see them when you were in prison? Yes. Um, my mom brought them regularly uh, a couple of times a year. So, you know, I, I saw them periodically throughout the year uh, as much as my mom possibly could. That's, I mean, that's I mean, not enough, but it's great that you, you kept in contact. Are you guys, did you pick up where, 
things left off? If if are things going okay right now? Are things a little rocky? Give me give me a give me a sense. I mean, they're they're teenagers. They're seventeen and eighteen years old. So okay. you know, I'm I'm trying to find my place in their life without being too disruptive. You know, they. I mean, we know how teenagers can be. They answer sometimes. They don't answer sometimes. <laughs> so you know, it's we're just trying to figure it out. You know, it's not you know, rocky or tumultuous at all. It's just, you know, we're trying to learn each other. I have two, two, two teenagers right now and uh, one in college, two in college. And I, I get it. I get it. And uh, teenagers uh, are interesting uh, human beings. Um, so let's talk about the case a little bit. And uh, 2005, there's a firebombing on Charleston street in Detroit, 20 month old uh, Tanya Vaughn, and 10-year-old Raymond Vaughn were killed. Where were you when this happened? I was at home. I was at home with my girlfriend, my son, um, her cousin, and his girlfriend at the time. Were you, uh, what time, do you know uh, what time this crime happened? Uh, Somewhere around midnight is when it eventually uh what was you know printed in the documents uh, you learned you learned later on that it happened around midnight yes the the police eventually told me you know the the time frame later on you found out that the crime happened around midnight do you have any i mean where was this house in relation to where you were uh it was a few streets over uh, i think it was exactly like two streets over from where i was living at the time and did you know these people? Did you know this family? Um, I knew the boyfriend, the the mom and the boyfriend. Um, the boyfriend was a lifelong friend of mine, Ron Rico Simmons, and his girlfriend, Naomi Vaughn. Uh, I'd been around her, you know, because of him. But the kids, you know, I didn't know them directly. I'd seen them around, you know, going over to visit him, not at this residence, at a previous residence. Um I had no relationship with them, you know, no conversation with them. So I didn't know them directly at all. No. And why do you think the 13 year old brother of the victims told the police he saw you, you know, committing this crime? Prior to this night, um, the former friend of mine, Enrico Simmons, he and I had a very, I guess you can say violent and tumultuous relationship. Mm. Um, I found out at, some point that he and my son's mom latoya Crawford, were having an affair that i didn't know about that mm-hmm. me finding knowledge of that you know it caused a rift in our relationship um you know we did some stupid things towards each other nobody was ever hurt but there was a lot of you know bickering back and forth there was an ongoing issue there in the months leading up to this however just uh, a few months prior to the fire happening, he and I had sort of come to an agreement that we would just stay out of each other's way. You know, we, we just steer clear of each other, you know, stop all of the nonsense. You stay away from me. I'll stay away from you. Um, this is documented and, you know, his statements is documented. He said it understand. We hadn't seen each other or been near each other in months, you know, leading up to this. So when my name came up, you know, naturally I was confused, but we would later find, find out that the police believed that Ron Rico was telling Brandon what to say. 
he was he was coaching him on what to say. He said, you know, my friend or my ex-friend, Ken Nixon, I want you to tell the police that you saw him outside the house. Something like that. Yes. Wow. Yeah, some, something yeah, paraphrasing in, in relation to that. Yes. That's that's pretty harsh. And, and this little this young boy's uh, transcripts show that he was inconsistent all along. I mean, he, he, he couldn't get a story straight. Correct. Um, we it later became clear, clear and apparent that it seems like every adult or someone of authority figure that this kid talked to, the story seemed to change. So, you know, we we weren't sure. We're still not sure if, you know, he's just agreeing to what people are saying to him or he's just regurgitating the information that's being given to him at the time. But with each new person that talked to him, the story evolved into something different each time. And the and 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 how did it come out of trial? Um he prior to trial, he gave three different statements to three different officers. And then at trial, he somehow merged all three statements together to make one meaningful testimony at trial. And did your lawyer do a good job poking holes and showing all the inconsistent statements to the jury uh, and impeach him? I believe so. I believe he, he did his best to you know highlight the inconsistencies as much as possible. Um, however, yeah, obviously it wasn't enough. Yeah. The jury believed him. Now your girlfriend, Latoya Callford was also charged. So yes. she wasn't allowed to testify in your behalf. Um, what was her charge? Uh, she was charged with the exact same charges. We both were charged with two counts of felony murder, four counts of attempted murder and one count of arson. And, and did the boy say he saw her too? Uh, I think either his second or his third statement evolved into she was the driver. Um, his first statement was he didn't see who was driving. He couldn't tell the difference, male or female. You know, he didn't know. And then all of a sudden, a few days later, second statement, different officer. And now she's the driver of the car. Did he identify the proper car? I mean, your car? He identified a car that was at the residence at the time. However, you know, he couldn't tell you which direction it was facing. Was it north? Was it south? You know, which were the headlights on or off? Was it pitch black? Was there street lights? He couldn't describe literally anything surrounding the car. You know, this, I mean, nobody, nobody didn't expect him not to know the car. I mean, we lived in the same area. So, you know, it was pretty obvious that he would know the car from seeing it in the neighborhood. But, you know, when you ask when the, when the important pertinent questions were asked, you know, which dire direction was it facing? Did I get into the passenger side or the driver's side? You know, was there headlights on Did I cross over the headlights Were the street lights on at the time? He had no consistent answer for any of that. Now Latoya was acquitted, and uh, is this the the your your children's mother? Yes. Are you two still together? Yes. Wow, that's that's no. amazing. No or yes? No. You're not still together. <laughs> no, okay. we're not still together. Is, is she uh, is she still part of your life? Is she still part of the kids' lives? Yes, yes, very much so. Um, 
she's she's very active and uh, she's my youngest son's mother she's still very active you know in his life uh, we see each other every friday at football games we communicate you know not regularly but we communicate a few times a week in relation to you know my son's upbringing but for the most part you know we're cordial we talk we speak you know there's no animosity there's no hard feelings there great okay good i'm glad you guys are still making it as friendly as possible so let's talk about um Let's talk about the prosecutor, uh, Patrick Muscat. Um, you know, he's been a prosecutor on several of these exoneration cases and, uh, you know, told the jury that you were angry with uh, Ronrico Simmons. Occasionally you stayed at the home that, that was eventually burned down and that uh, you had previous, uh, the previous relationship and you wanted revenge. Um, you kind of already touched on this, but when you first heard this, what, what was your reaction? Yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, for me, it was just really, really hard to sit there and listen to, um, I mean, lies. There's just pure untruths to it. So it, it was hurtful, you know, in, in my head now that I'm a little older and I can process things a little differently. In that moment, you know, I felt like the people that were there to protect me were the people that were attacking me. You know, and it just made no sense whatsoever that, you know, all of it was based off of lies. There was testimony at your trial that you had gasoline on your clothes um, and this was a fire type case. Can you can you explain why you had fire on your clothes? Uh, I just recently started a towing company and, you know, pretty much uh, towing cars. It, it comes with, you know, liquid um uh, petroleum-based products associated with automobiles. Um, that was also disputed, you know, at trial. This was later determined not to be completely true. Um, one of the things that people don't really understand is, with as with arson cases, um, they brought a dog in to identify accelerants on things around the house, around the car. Well, what Patrick Muscat didn't tell the jury is that the dog is trained to detect petroleum-based products. So that statement alone changes the entire landscape of the information because a dog doesn't know the difference between gasoline and perfume or motor oil and glue, for example. The dog doesn't know the difference. It's supposed to be by law technical terms it's supposed to be verified by a laboratory and once all of the items that were confiscated or taken from my possession or my home's possession after they were tested it turns out there was nothing there on any of them hmm. you know and and that became it, it should have become an issue when it didn't because he told the jury that there was gasoline there when in reality there was nothing there and, and didn't a cop, uh, Roger McGee, testify that his dog linked your clothes to the scene and that his dog is never wrong? He definitely told the jury that his dog was 100% correct. Well, that sounds nuts and objectionable, and I'm shocked the judge let that in. I, we didn't, I didn't even ask you about your attorney during this trial. Were you satisfied with how he defended you or she defended you? I think he did the best that he possibly could with the information that he had. Um, 
I think maybe with more time, when I went through trial, you know, Wayne County was under what was considered a rocket docket when they were literally pushing cases through as quickly as possible uh, from arrest to sentencing was less than six months. So, you know, I don't think he had enough time to really do the appropriate investigation. But I mean, I, I 100% believe he did the best he could with what he had. And, you know, he was confident in his ability to win, you know, turns out it just wasn't enough. So, you know, on open mic here, we've had several uh, people who were wrongfully convicted and, and one of the linchpins that convicted him was this jailhouse snitch, which is such, is so problematic in so many different cases. And of course your case had one too. Um, the snitch said that you admitted to the fire bombing. Um, Tell me, what do you know about this guy? And did he end up getting a deal for testifying against you, which is pretty common in all these cases? Yes. Um, the guy's name was Stanley January. And we now know that he was a career informant. Anytime he got in trouble, he found his way onto someone else's case. Um, in my case in particular, not that I know of, he he didn't get a deal in my case. However, he had a plea agreement to testify in another murder case that was pending at the exact same time. And he gave testimony in my case out of the goodness of his heart at, at that particular time. But the reality is this guy was, I think, a fourth habitual bank robber looking at a life sentence and his payment for testifying against me and the other guy that he signed the agreement was he would get one to three years. So he went from a life sentence to 12 to 36 months. So outrageous. Um, did, did he ever get, did he ever come clean? Did he ever come out and say he lied? Uh, yes, he actually did. Um, one of the, the big, big, big glaring lies that he told, was that he had no knowledge of the case prior to talking to the police, which was untrue because that was a very high profile case. It was on every news station for probably weeks at a time. He testified to not seeing any news. Um, in 2018, a group of journalism students from Medill Justice Project in Illinois took on my case as a class project. They came here. He was one of the people that they spoke to in 2018. Um, he admitted to them that he did have knowledge of the case because he'd seen it on the news prior to notifying the police. And if you look at, you know, a lot of what he says at, at trial and the media coverage at the time, it pretty much parallels word for word. Did these students, uh, did this student, did the students interview and, and that information they got out of it help you eventually get exonerated? Yes. Because, I mean, it was the complete opposite of what he testified to. He testified that he'd never seen the news and he had no prior knowledge. I love over it. a decade later, over a decade later, he's now saying he did see the news and he did know about the case prior to testify. I love it. And the snitch, you never met him before, right? You were never in a jail cell near him with him. Uh, we were in a bullpen together upstairs in the Wayne County Jail. Did you talk to him? Do you talk to anybody about admitting or doing anything in this crime? No, that's absolutely absurd. I had no reason to talk to this strange guy that I knew nothing about. I think I knew the answer, but I, I felt like <laughs> I could ask it anyway. Uh, for the record, as they say. Um, 
So you had alibi witnesses. Um, your girlfriend didn't get to testify. That's a really interesting, the fact that she was a co-defendant. Did you guys get tried together? Yes. We sat in the same courtroom at the same defense table, two separate juries, same evidence, same witnesses. So had she taken the stand on your behalf, they could have asked her questions that, uh, that your, that her attorney didn't want her to answer. And, and, she couldn't help you and you couldn't yes. help her. That's yes. kind of messed up. Yes, very much so. Um, did either of you testify at trial? No. So September 21st, 2005, you were convicted. Um, your girlfriend was, uh, was acquitted. I mean, you know, I, I know you maintained your innocence for all these years. And during the trial, I mean, when you hear this guilty verdict, what's going on through your head? I was crushed. I was devastated. Um, you know, as a, as a kid, you're taught to believe that the system works the way that it's supposed to, you know, you, I expected logic and truth to play itself out and that just didn't happen. And then when the verdicts, you know, our verdicts came out a few hours apart, mine came out first with the guilty and I was crushed. I didn't know what I was going to do next. I mean, I'm a kid. I was 19 years old. I had no knowledge of, the penal system besides traffic tickets, you know, I'd never really been in any trouble. And then when I found out that she was acquitted, I just knew that the system would somehow find a way to get it right. I didn't think it would take almost 16 years for it to happen, but mm. I mean, it, it kind of, once she was found not guilty, it explodes your theory. If your theory is that she drove me to the crime scene and I committed this crime, if she was acquitted, then how did I get there? It's not very consistent. Exactly. There's no consistency in that at all. It doesn't make any sense. And I, and, and tell, tell our listeners and viewers what you told the sentencing judge when he was about to sentence you. I told him that I wanted him to know that he was about to sentence an innocent man to prison for the rest of my life for a crime that I didn't commit. Gives me chills. So sorry this happened to you. How did the uh, Justice Project at Northwestern University get involved? Um, they, they had a application process um i'd come across their name and something that i was reading maybe a magazine or something and i wrote and i wrote and i wrote until eventually um we were noticed i was on the waiting list for about six years and luck of the draw my girlfriend at the time uh, wendy woods she they sent me a duplicate application to fill out and i asked her to call and ask them if they wanted me to fill it out and just so happened, the lady that answered the phone pulled my original application and started to look at it. And she had some questions and she took them to the professor. And that's how they ended up accepting my case as a case project. That's fabulous. Thank, thank God for them. Yes. And, you know, you already mentioned to us that, the, that they learned what the snitch told them. Um, did you guys not know about the deals that he had and was that not presented at trial or was it just the fact that he had lied on the stand and said he hadn't seen news when he, when he actually did see the news? What, what was it more than one piece of, of new information or was there a couple? Uh, there was actually a couple. The, the article that eventually came out that made front page news based off of their investigation also uncovered two memorandums that were, withheld from us. The first one was from Detective Curtis Staples that was written um, three days after I was arrested. And in this memo, he is telling 
his lieutenant, which is Lieutenant James Tolbert, as we know, has been involved in quite a few other wrongful convictions. He's notifying his lieutenant that it's obvious that this kid is being coached by family members. That memorandum was written just, you know, days after my arrest. And the kid and, is the kid who testified that you were the one in the car. Yes, Brandon, Brandon Vaughn. Um, that memo didn't surface until, you know, 2017, 2018, and they wrote about it. The second memo was uh, a memo from Pat Patrick Muscat, also to Lieutenant James Tobert. And there's a section in that memo that, I mean, the memo literally starts off with, to be blunt, this case has serious problems. And, you know, the second page of this memo also brings uh, to Detective Tolbert's attention that there was a previous fire that w involved the same family that was set by a jealous ex-boyfriend years prior. And none of this information was brought to our attention. My defense attorney didn't know. None of my appellate attorneys knew about this. We eventually, you know, dug up the truth about it. And yes, there actually was a previous fire at another residence. And then the Janley, Stanley January, the jailhouse informant, that I mean, now he's admitting to knowing information prior to coming forward to testify. You know, it all kind of culminated together to show, you know, sort of a pattern there. So the Brady, how did the Brady violations come to light? How did these memos um, miraculously appear? Was it the students or something else happened? Yes. The, the students um, we'd eventually gotten, uh, a clean copy our, ourselves from just, you know, I've been doing FOIA requests for years. It took me close to a decade to accumulate, you know, all of the documents associated with my case. Um, the, the memo from the prosecutor's office took us about five years and several different FOIA requests. They continuously refused to turn over the documents to us. Um, eventually we got the first and the third page and it still took us another couple of years to get the second page. Uh, in fact, I ended up having to hire a private attorney to do the FOIA request for me because they just refused to supply the information until we brought in a professional. And once we got it, um, the, the students, you know, eventually did their own independent investigation, verify, you know, where it came from and, that's how it became public information. Uh, infuriating. Um, it's so infuriating to hear these stories. Um, so Wayne County Integrity Unit got involved. The Cooley Law School Innocence Project also got involved. I assume Northwestern University got them involved. Uh, I was actually on the waiting list for Cooley already. Um, I, I'd been waiting for quite a few years, but once the newspaper article came out, I mean, I was front page news and there was a big fuss about me being front page news with all of this information. And, you know, Cooley came right on board right after, not long after that came about. There was a, a grant that allowed them to expand a little bit and work with the Conviction Integrity Unit. And I was top of the list. That's awesome. Um, you described the two memos and the... Um, the information they found with the jailhouse snitch, what uh, was presented to the judge, Judge Bruce Morrow down in Wayne County, and what did Judge Morrow do? Um, I, I'm, I don't know specifically or, or personally 
what was presented to him. I understand that the Conviction Integrity Unit verified the information. They did their own independent investigation and they came to the conclusion that, you know, I was innocent and that I had been wrongfully convicted. They presented their findings to the judge and he agreed. Um, February 18th of 2021 this year, uh, he set a court date and he exonerated me. Um, one thing that's a little strange is that the victim's family is upset and didn't want you freed. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, I don't really have any thoughts about it one way or other. I, I think that, you know, they're entitled to their feelings. I think they're entitled to their emotions. However, I think they're misdirected. I think they're aiming their aggression at me when in reality they should be talking to the police. They should be talking to the prosecutors that's lied to them for all these years. I'm not the, I'm a victim just like they are. You know, the people that are truly responsible for misleading you all this time are the people you should be having that conversation with. It's a really good point. I mean, the, the, the perpetrators, the criminals are still out there. Yeah. They never caught yeah. him. No. So listen, you're still a young man. What, uh, what's in store for you? I've been doing tons of advocacy work, you know, just speaking out on behalf of other wrongfully convicted people and bringing awareness and visibility to the issue of wrongful convictions. I think there's a lot wrong with the system and, you know, who better to tell that story than a person that's been affected by it? You know, this has affected me personally and not just me, you know, there's a group of us that have come together and we're speaking out about this and we're doing the best that we can to make sure that people don't sweep this under the rug. We're trying as best as we possibly can to um, hold public officials accountable for the decisions that they're making. You know, these decisions are affecting people's lives and society needs to hear about it. So, you know, we've come together as a group. Say that again. What's the name of your organization? The National Organization of Exonerees. Well, we'll definitely put that in our show notes. So if people want to contact you, donate, uh, I assume you have a website or we'll have one eventually. Um, people will, you know, people will want to reach out and help you and, um, you know, please keep in touch with us here at the Mike Morse law firm and open Mike and myself, because, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled what happened to you, uh, eight months ago, not before that. Um, but I'm thrilled that you're out and you you have your kids and, uh, you're advocating and everything sounds like it's it's going well. Thank God for the Conviction Integrity Unit of Wayne County. I think you're the 28th person that they freed uh, for wrongful convictions. Is that the right number, 28? Yes, I am number 28. And they haven't been open that long? No, just I, uh, I, I think a little over three years. You know, Valerie Newman and Kim Worthy, they're doing a, they're doing a good, good job clearing up cases at their own office prosecuted which is just rare and we've talked about it and you know there's only do you know that there is only a hundred conviction integrity units and there are thousands of prosecutor offices across this country there's only a hundred it's very sad sad. stories like yours though go a long way hopefully to convict convince others to open a conviction integrity unit because there's a lot of people who are sitting in prisons for crime they didn't commit without these units really taking a hard look and joining forces with innocent projects, you know, these people don't have a, a chance. And uh, I can't say how happy I am for you, Kenneth. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. And if there's anything we can ever do for you here, please reach out. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. It was nice to meet you. Nice to meet you.
Kenneth Nixon, thank you for being here. Uh, another story. I mean, it's, I've said this before on open mic, but the similarities, you know, a bad cop, a bad prosecutor, uh, uh, you know, jailhouse snitches. I mean, what a joke, what a racket that is. Um, but thank God, um, the truth came out. I'm very happy that the truth came out. I'm happy that he's with his kids and, uh, a happy ending. So thank you for being here on Open Mic. And please make sure you're a subscriber. Comment below. I'd love to hear what you heard, thought about that episode. Not enough people comment. I read the comments, like the episode, share the episode, so we know we should do more. Okay. And there's lots more to hear on Open Mic. There's over 110 episodes, maybe even 120 at this point. And um, we'd love to hear from you. So thanks. And we'll see you soon.